0: What happens when you die? Go to heaven or go to hell? Well, there's a big funeral. They go to heaven. <laughs> they go to the reward or unreward of their life. What happens when you die? I was always taught you go to heaven. I go to heaven. Yeah, it's light on it's, it's a done deal, game over. That's a hell of a question to ask. <laughs> Depending on where you want to go. That's such an open-ended question, I don't know how to answer. If I knew that, I'd be in the Bahamas right now, lying on a lounge chair. Can I ask you a quick question? What happens when you die? Well, you go to heaven or hell? <laughs> I mean, I think your life's just over and that's that. I think we go going somewhere into the paradise where it behaves or where it doesn't. Your soul gets reincarnated to a new body that's being born that day. And it all begins again. What happens when you die? We're gone. That's it. I don't know. There's dust, dust. That's it for you in judaism we believe that there is another life after that you know you go up to heaven and if you did your your job in this world then you um, you do get rewarded in, a, in another life after you pass away physically It's based on what based on belief or or faith Right. depending on how they live their life my parents belief It's what they told me in sunday school if i knew that you know i'd be selling a lot of books and having a tv show based on what my faith in god it's the choices that you make. If you do good things, kindness, then I guess you'd go to heaven. Based on uh, whether you've accepted Jesus as your Savior or not. I don't know. There's a lot of different opinions, so you really can't focus on just one. On too much bad in your life, then you go to purgatory. Is you go to the uh, you go through like a cleansing process before you can get into heaven. What a strange question. What kind of question is that? Well, one thing's for sure, there's a lot of uncertainty about the afterlife. Everybody's got an opinion about uh, what happens when you die, but, uh, you know, or what the truth of that is, there's some confusion. Is it heaven? Is it hell? Is it purgatory? Uh, one of you submitted that Catholic question recently. Someone just put it, what's the deal with purgatory? What is that? I want to welcome you to Catholic Questions, and uh, today we're going to hit this, this issue head-on and talk about what the Bible says you can expect in the hereafter. Now here's the deal. This is a heavy topic, so I want to begin by sharing one of my favorite far side cartoons. Uh, You like the far side? You ever see this cartoon? Uh, The top shows a guy in the clouds and an angel saying, welcome to heaven, here's your harp. And the bottom shows a guy in flames with the devil saying, "Uh, welcome to hell, here's your accordion. Uh, You know, it's like they play country music uh, in purgatory. If you're in an opera, it's probably hip-hop. Uh, anyway, last Sunday was pretty exciting. At our services, we had over half a dozen people put their faith in Christ for the first time, which was just totally, totally exciting. Really, really cool. All of our campuses. I um, was talking with a girl this week. I don't know if Teresa's here. Or if she's here. I, I visited her at Greenberry's the other day. Just the coolest thing. She was like, I am so excited. She said, I grew up Catholic, fell away from the church. Just stuff has gone on in my life. And a lot of times, I've just felt this guilt of falling short, and it finally clicked for me that I don't have to live the perfect life. That's what Jesus did. And she accepted Christ into her heart as her Savior, and she said it was just like the floodgates burst open and this guilt started pouring out on the floor. She goes, and I just felt, she said, just this warm feeling of just gratitude and thankfulness towards God. That's the gospel. It's powerful. The Bible says that when somebody puts their faith or their trust in Jesus Christ, what it means is they're trusting that Jesus' death on the cross, literally his blood covered or paid for their sins, and it restores their relationship to God. That's called salvation. That's why people say, I'm, I'm saved. And once saved, the Bible teaches that when a believer dies, they will literally go straight to the presence of God, a place that we call heaven. Heaven. And that really just means the presence of God. I'm in, I'm in God's presence, and when we'll see Jesus face-to-face. Face, let me get that V. Perfect. Oh, yeah, right there. Heaven when they die. So understand what, what, that amazing idea. I was talking with Teresa, and that whole idea that, that, yeah, when you die, while, while people are picking out your casket, they're planning your funeral, you've never been more alive than at that moment because you're in the presence of God. Now, if a person dies without having had their sins forgiven, the Bible teaches they're going to a place known as, it's called Sheol, it's called Gehenna. We commonly call it hell. If you're an ACDC fan, you know a few songs this way, okay? Thank you, Lou. Uh, Most people, and hell is really the absence of God. Most people on the street were familiar with these two ideas. They understand heaven, they understand there's a hell, but Catholics would say, even if you've put your faith in Christ, you can't be completely sure you automatically go to heaven when you die. Because for Catholics, there's a third place called purgatory. This kind of in-between state where if you're not good enough for heaven and not quite bad enough for hell, you go to purgatory. This in-between state. Um, It's it's really a place or a process uh, for souls that, 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 that still have some sin left in them that need to get scrubbed clean. Here's the deal. I used to play hockey in college. And, uh, and when you broke the rules, you get a penalty. If you, know, if you cross-check someone into the head, you know, in the head, two-minute penalty, great sport. Uh, and you went to the penalty box, which we had a nickname for it. We called it the sin bin. Have you ever heard of this? It's the place you went to be temporarily punished for your sins before you could get out to rejoin the game. And that's kind of what purgatory is. This is the place you go where you pay the penalty for your sin before you can actually advance to heaven. See, in the Catholic Church, even if you've put your faith in Christ, you may still need to make amends for sin that went unpunished while on earth. Now again, I don't want to misrepresent this, so I'll be quoting directly from the the catechism. This is from the Second Vatican Council. It says, The truth has been divinely revealed, that sins are followed by punishment. God's holiness and justice inflict them. Sins must be expiated or make amends for or paid for, and we would absolutely agree with that. Catholics would say this could be done through sorrows, miseries, and trials of life, and above all through death. And then it says, otherwise, the expiation must be made in the next life through fire and torments or purifying punishments. That's what purgatory is, if you literally look at the word, you see the word purge in here, it means to literally purify, and, and when you see that kind of fiery torment, this is where we get kind of the idea that, oh man, that's where, you know, that's where the flames are, and it's going to be hot in, in the sin bin and all that kind of thing, okay? Now listen, I'm not, I, don't, I don't mean to d- d- diminish this, because it's really the belief that your soul is going to be scrubbed uh, clean of its most stubborn sins before it can go to heaven. Now most Roman Catholic theologians have very different explanations for how that happens, Uh, The early Catholic Church um, taught souls in purgatory suffer this this intense physical pain from fire. And that's why if you take a a tour of Roman Catholic cathedrals, you'll see works of art like this. Um, I was in Rome. You can take a look at this. Those are people in purgatory. That's not hell. If you look at the the faces peeking through the flames, you can see who are the souls praying to. They're praying to Mary. They're, They're begging the Holy Mother for mercy. Here's a carved scene from a cathedral in Germany. That's purgatory. Again, those are men and women, not quite ready for heaven, not bad enough for hell, but the flames of purgatory kind of purify their, their souls before they can ascend. So it's kind of weird, a little bit freaky, but just track with me. In the medieval mind, purgatory was like this really, really hot waiting room where people had to wait and wait and wait and wait some more until their name was finally called. Kind of like the division of motor vehicles, okay? If you're with me, you've been there. Now, modern Catholic uh, theologians have suggested, well, purgatory is not so much a place as it is kind of just a process of purification. Any pain you have is kind of this sense of sorrow or, or loss of being separated from God. And the amount of time that you spend there depends on what sins you have that have gone unpunished. Okay? In the Catholic world, two kinds of sins. There's mortal sins. Those are deadly sins like adultery or murder. Even if you've led a great life, you've done good works, you took the sacraments, if you commit a mortal sin at the end of your life, you go straight here. You do not pass go. It's always in question. But venial sins are smaller sins, like white lies, you know, like fudging on your taxes. They're considered less serious. And the idea is, with each venial sin, you have a penance to do. And any penance or payment that's left undone on earth converts to punishment in purgatory. So the amount of time you spend there varies, uh, especially according to Thomas Aquinas. You might have heard of him. He is the Italian priest who is considered by most Catholics to be the, the Catholic Church's greatest theologian and philosopher. In his masterwork Summa Theologica, here's what he wrote. He said, it follows that some souls are tormented in purgatory longer than others for as much as their affections were steeped in venial sin. So, everyone following so far, I think you've got this. Where you go when you die, up Or down, or somewhere in between the two, is uncertain if you hold to the dogma of the Catholic Church, because you can never know how much unpaid for sin you may have left in the afterlife. Let me show you another far side cartoon. I think this kind of illustrates that uncertainty. If you're listening online, it shows a guy standing before two doors. (laughs) One says, damned if you do, the other door says, damned if you don't. And the devil's poking him in the back, and he said, come on, come on, it's either one or the other. Pick it. Now, here's the good news. If you die and you have a Catholic relative who's living, they can help move your soul through purgatory more quickly. How? By saying prayers, by fasting, by giving alms to the poor, by performing good works. So, in other words, good works that are done can actually get credited to the deceased. So, if your your uncle died and you want to help move him through purgatory, you may have, like a priest, say, a mass in his honor. In fact, when I attended um, St. Vincent's Mass the other, the other week, just a little research, it was very interesting. They had the, list, the, the names listed here in whose honor this Mass was being performed in, in the bulletin listed. Every Mass always has someone that's kind of moving through purgatory. So that's the tradition, okay? That's the official dogma of purgatory. And the question before us is this, where does this come from? Does this come from the Word of God, as always our, our text, or is it the man-made tradition? As we've been learning, Protestants hold to sola scriptura or scripture alone the Bible plus nothing to determine what is truth versus what's tradition, whereas Catholics regard tradition, the tradition of the church, equal to the word of God. You remember this? So therefore, the Catholic church would have no problem admitting, they would say, the doctrine of purgatory is not explicitly stated in the Bible. They'd be like, that's, that's absolutely true. It's church tradition, not divine revelation that is the source of of its existence. Now, here's the deal. If you dig a little bit, you will find Catholics say, well, there is support, though, for purgatory found in the Apocrypha. And a bunch of you, I was actually surprised. You guys are like a savvy bunch. Probably almost 20 people said, what's the deal with the Apocrypha? Is the Catholic Bible different? Is it bigger than ours? What's the deal with that? The apocrypha. Who's heard of that? Has anyone heard of the Apocrypha? The Apocrypha means hidden or hard to understand, and basically it's this group of 15 writings that were added on to Scripture less than 500 years ago, around the time of 1546. And it contains historical information basically about those 400 years between the Old and the New Testament. And the Roman Catholic Bible, the Old Testament, is about 20% larger than the Protestant because it contains the apocryphal writings like First and Second Maccabees. Maybe you've heard of that. And the belief in purgatory is based upon 2 Maccabees, which describes how the Jews prayed for their fallen dead, that their sins might be forgiven them. Notice it doesn't mention purgatory. And Catholics say that's true. But it kind of implies that there's forgiveness and punishment beyond the grave. Now, you will not find this in our Bible, largely because the Apocrypha was officially added onto Scripture in 1546. Does anyone remember what was going on in the 16th century around that time? Yeah, that's the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, less than 500 years ago. In other words, this protest movement, do you remember this? The Reformation was just starting to cast fire, and the flashpoint was Martin Luther, a Catholic priest who was protesting to the selling of pardons from purgatory. So one way the Catholic Church responded to that tradition was by holding a, the Council of Trent. That just means they brought all the bishops and the priests and the Pope together. And they said, well, we are now declaring the Apocrypha divinely inspired because it gave support to the to purgatory. Tobit 12, verse 9 says this, almsgiving, giving to the poor, saves one from death and expiates or pays for every sin. So the Apocrypha was one way Rome kind of counter-responded to the Protestant reformers. Now, just listen, just time out, just don't you know, track with me, I get it, dense stuff is begs the question, well, how, how, did we, how are certain books determined to be inspired while others weren't? I mean, how did we get the canon of Scripture, get decided anyway? That is, an ama- that is a great question. Good for you. It is well beyond the scope of our conversation today. And here's the deal. If you are interested, your campus pastor has a whole list of resources for you to literally find out how did we actually get our Bible? Because it's a great question and it's fascinating. But suffice to say, the main reasons, just want short, real short, why the Apocrypha was rejected as Scripture? One was historical. The first thousand years of the church, neither Jews nor Christians accepted the Apocrypha as Scripture. thousand years. This was only 500 years ago. The second is literary. The Apocrypha itself doesn't ever claim to be divine revelation. In fact, the author of Second Maccabees that you just heard from, he said, mine is an abridgment of five other books. And he ends, his, ends the book with this. He says, if it is well written and to the point, that's what I wanted. If it's poorly done and mediocre, that's the best I can do. I'm not making fun. It's just it doesn't sound that inspired. Mediocre is a good description of the apocrypha. Protestants, Catholics would say that. They'd say compared to the other Old Testament, very different literary quality. And here's the here's the number number three reason, most important. Jesus and the in the New Testament writers never quoted once from the apocrypha. Virtually every book of the Old Testament is referred to at least one time in the New Testament and it does not contain one single quotation from the Apocrypha. So those are the the three main historical, literary, and Christological reasons the Apocrypha has historically been rejected as Scripture. Now, back to the issue at hand, because whether or not you believe that, the question is, what happens when we die? If you trust in Jesus, should you expect paradise or purgatory? And for the answer to that, I do want to appeal to something that both Catholics and Protestants agree on, and that is the final words of Christ on the cross. We are in the season of Lent uh, leading up to Easter and it's a time where Christians all over the world, we focus on the passion. You've heard of the passion. It doesn't mean the love of Christ, it actually means the suffering of Christ. So in a few weeks we're going to have Maundy Thursday, then we have Good Friday and then finally, thank God, we're going to celebrate Easter Sunday. So it's fitting that we actually look at the last words of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels in both Protestant and Catholic Bibles, same one, to answer this question about what do you expect in the afterlife. So let me invite you to turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel of Mark 15, where we find the account of Jesus' crucifixion. And folks, this is where it all comes together. This is like the flashpoint of our faith. Remember, God's reaching into human history to sacrifice His only Son for the sins of mankind. After celebrating uh, the Last Supper, next week we're going to get into communion, the Eucharist, we're actually going to celebrate that together. I can't wait. Jesus was arrested He was charged in a mock trial, and then he was sentenced. He was given the horrific Roman punishment known as crucifixion. Mark 15, 25 says this, It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left, and those who passed by hurled insults at him. Verse 31, He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So everybody is mocking and taunting Jesus. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. When we listen to Jesus' final words on the cross, we come away with a crystal clear answer about whether we can expect purgatory or paradise in the afterlife. Now before I break this down, I'm very wary of this becoming an intellectual exercise, something that appeals to your mind but just misses your heart. And so to help you experience the cross as we approach Easter, I want to show you a clip from The Passion of the Christ which visually depicts this passage that we just read. Parents, I'm going to give you a quick warning here uh, if you do have children. Uh, This is a scene, it is straight from the gospel we read depicting the crucifixion of Jesus and it is graphic just as it was in real life. So I just want to give you that heads up so you can decide whether or not to let your children watch if they're mature enough to handle it so you feel free to cover their eyes. This is the gospel. 是 Tough to take. And yet, that's what Christ took on himself voluntarily to save you and to save me. That's why we call ourselves Christians. Greater love has no man than this that he lay down his life for his friends. A dying man's last words are filled with profound meaning. If you've ever been in a hospital room, as I have, when people have passed from this life into the next, what they say before they die has Profound implications. And as Jesus hung there, the gospel records three cries from the cross that answer this question of heaven, hell, or purgatory with stunning clarity. These three cries from the cross, as we just read, Jesus cried out in Mark, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The gospel that follows Mark, written by the historian Luke, records a promise that Jesus made to the thief dying Beside him. He said, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me where? In paradise. And the final cry that Jesus utters before he took his last breath consists of just three words It is finished. Notice that the gospel writers, Mark, Luke, and John, each one emphasizes a unique cry from the cross that Jesus utters in his final moments on earth. And I would tell you, this is no accident. Jesus was a master teacher. And in his final words, Jesus was communicating three profound truths that give clear answers about what to expect when we die. The first cry tells us the scope of the pain that he endured for you and me. The second is about the payment he made so that we wouldn't have anything left to pay for. And based on the first two, that's the reason he has the power to make an incredible promise to any man, woman, or believes, the pain, the payment, and the promise. These three cries from the cross are the entire keys to unlocking the truth about purgatory. Let's look first at this, this idea of the pain Jesus endured. I mean, when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That wasn't a, a, a cry of surprise. Like, where did God go as he physically suffered? It wasn't a physical cry. It was more of a, even a, 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 a cry of spiritual death. This is hard for us to imagine the kind of relationship that existed between Jesus and his heavenly Father. This may be new to you. The Bible says, at the heart of the universe is not a mathematical equation or nuclear fusion. At the heart of all creation is the incredible love and intimacy between a loving Father and his beloved boy. That's Jesus. The best picture that we can have of a father-son love relationship on earth think of think of when i think of my, myself and my five-year-old boy del i'll show you a picture of him take a look at this that's my little boy i love him all right he looks like me we adore each other that's his first day of school we love being together there's virtually nothing i wouldn't do for him okay i'll take you out <laughs> that's just the that's a sliver of the kind of affection that jesus had with his abba with his daddy. He, he said, in John, he said, we're so alike that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's in me, I'm in him, we're one. And this is hard for us to imagine because we've only known earthly relationships. An imperfect father. But I want you to imagine that perfect intimacy between a father and son, never a harsh word, abuse between them, just love and trust from all of eternity. Which is why, when Jesus is on the cross, he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the sound of a child being ripped from his father's arms. When our sin was put on Jesus' shoulders, it caused him to experience something he had never tasted. Separation from his father. It it is a cry of anguish, of spiritual death. When Colleen and I took the kids to visit Disney World um, on vacation this past fall, we were waiting in line for the Toy Story ride, and we're sitting there and we're eating cotton candy or whatever it was, when a woman... Let's out this blood-curdling scream. She starts yelling, "Henry, Henry, where are you? Where are you?" She was freaking out. It was a mom and her three-year-old boy named Henry had wandered off and got lost in a thousand people, and she ran around frantically, "Where are you, Henry? Henry, where are you?" It was a, it was a horrifying moment. There is nothing scarier for a parent to lose a beloved child, that's what God felt when Jesus cried, why have you forsaken me? The object of his perfect love and affection was literally ripped from him on the cross. That's what sin does. It tears the fabric of God's family. It separates a child from his beloved father. That's what it does to us. And when our sins were put upon Jesus, he was literally ripped away from Abba. 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Because see, the Father is not just loving. (laughs) He is holy and just. And as Jesus literally became our sin, he was cut off from God's presence. That's what hell is. You know that? That's the definition literally of hell. If heaven is the presence of God, hell is the complete and total absence of God. Separation from the Father. That's literally hell. And for Jesus, this is a literal cry from hell. Forsaken, abandoned. Let's be honest. Most folks look at the cross and we focus on the physical pain of it. We look at the nails. We look at the thorns, the spear in the side. Let me tell you something. In a very real way, the physical pain endured by Jesus pales in comparison to the relational pain of being ripped from his beloved father. Some of us know a little bit about the relational pain of being abandoned by a father, the wounding, the loneliness, and this is a cry of agony over separation. My God, why have you forsaken me? Imagine Jesus looking up, and for the first time ever, his father wasn't there. That is a cry from hell, the absence of God. It's very interesting. Most religious art depicts hell or purgatory as a place of red-hot and orange flames. But if you've ever read Dante's Inferno, fascinating. It's a Catholic depiction of the circles of hell. Readers are always shocked because they're shocked to discover that at at the very bottom, the deepest, farthest circle of hell, there are no flames. It's covered in ice. Completely dark, pitch black. It's frozen over. Why? Because it's the one place in the universe that is completely cut off from the light and warmth of the Father's love that's hell that's hell that's what Jesus tasted when he took on our sin on the cross he was ripped from his Father he literally experienced a spiritual agony that we have no idea the scope of as a pastor sometimes people freak out about hell and a lot of times people come up to me and say, so, so, so is hell real? And I tell them, yes, of course it is. And they say, well, well is, is it literal fire and brimstone and burning flames? I say, it may not be. And they go, Whoosh. and then I say, it's probably worse. It's a complete absence of God and his love. Not a shred of his loving kindness or grace for you to drink from where you are all alone, just you and your miserable sins, surrounded by others who didn't want anything to do with God in this life, and now God actually gave them what they want. He throws nobody into hell. He gives us what we want. The good news, guys, is that your father, God, doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He is literally a loving father and his deepest desire is for every man, woman, and child to respond to his love. The sacrifice of Jesus. Second Peter 3.9, I love this verse. It says, The Lord is patient with you. Let's read this together. What? Not wanting anyone, anyone to perish, but everyone to come to Repentance. You know, some people would criticize the church for talking about, you know, hell and the afterlife, saying, well, preachers just want to scare the hell out of you. Listen, Jesus literally came to love the hell out of you. That's why Jesus came, to love the hell out of you so that you would literally see it's all about love. God doesn't want a single person to suffer. That's why the first cry from the cross reveals the pain that Jesus endured, so we wouldn't have to. His second cry, it is finished, shows us the scope of the payment that he made. When it says it is finished, what's it? Obviously, it is dying for the sins of the world. But the word finished here I want to draw your attention to. This is fascinating. This is an English translation of a Greek word that was probably spoken in Aramaic, honestly, and I don't drop a ton of Greek on you, but the meaning for the word finished here that Jesus uses means literally paid in Full. Can we say that together? Paid in full. It's a monetary term. Like if you rang up a huge, bill, a huge debt you couldn't even touch, and someone stepped in and like said, I'm going to pay the whole thing. I saw a funny story recently about a kid. Um, just to give you a little breather here, but this, I, I thought this was relevant. I don't know if you saw this. It was a kid who had been secretly using his mom's cell phone to call a 900 number at times. He'd been at it for a couple of weeks, a little bit at a time. She never noticed. And one night, apparently under his covers, the, the report says, he called the 900 number and then he fell asleep. Good times. While well, her cell was still connected. And so next morning, woke up, forgot about it. You know, he went off to school. Mom can't find her phone, whatever. it's cell gets lost in the shuffle. Until 48 hours later, AT&T calls their home and says, hey, is everything okay? Because you've been connected to a 900 number for three straight days. Whoops. All told, the charges this 12-year-old kid racked up were over $5,000 in 3 days. 1995, think about this, for 10, you know, for 10 minutes in 3 days and overseas charges, okay, he went to purgatory, all right? Just parents. The point is with a bill like that, I mean, so beyond the scope of the kids' bill. He couldn't even keep up with the interest. When Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, when he said it is finished, he meant Your bill for your sin is paid in full. There's nothing left. There is no penance to be made. There is no punishment waiting for you. It is what? Finished. Completed. Done. See, that's one of the the problems with purgatory because it implies that Christ's sacrifice was powerful, but it wasn't enough to pay in full for all of our sins. That's why the soul has to be temporarily punished, the dogma says, because penance in the afterlife kind of balances the ledger out for what you didn't pay for in this life. Now contrast this with Jesus' three words. It is finished. That's all, folks. It's done. There's nothing left for you to pay. That's what the literal definition of finished means, completed, perfected, in every detail. So when you ask Christ to forgive your sins, there ain't nothing left for you to pay for. The second half of 2 Corinthians 5, we we saw that. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that what? In him we might become the what? The righteousness of God. So on the cross, something happens. Bankers will appreciate this. Jesus paid our debts from his account. In other words, God took from Jesus' account and then credited his righteousness to ours. That's why when he looks at you, he says, Oh, my son Matthew, welcome into heaven. And Matthew goes, Oh, is it because I'm a good person? He goes, No. Because I look at you and I see my son Jesus. He took your sin and now you have his righteousness. And therefore, there's nothing left to pay. It is what? Finished. Thank God for that. All our sins, past, present, future, are paid in full by Christ's death on the cross. How liberating is that? I mean, if you've carried around guilt for things you've done, and the cross says, why? Get rid of your Catholic guilt. Step into the freedom that comes with complete forgiveness. I was talking with a girl in our congregation, honestly, and it just—it—I it, it, just, my, my heart hurt for her. She was so haunted. Without getting into you know, a lot of details, she couldn't forgive herself for having an abortion. And her boyfriend, the guy who kind of encouraged her to get one, he was just racked with guilt. He says, "I just can never, can never, I can never forgive my never." For-. When you bow before the cross, he said, "Jesus, you died out of love for me. Forgive me." He looks down at you and he says, "It is. Let's say it. Finished. You're forgiven. Because Jesus was rejected, you are now fully accepted in God's eyes." Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is now no what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Freedom, forgiveness. In other words, guys, because Jesus endured our pain, no one has to go to hell. Because he paid fully for our sins, it's finished, ain't nothing left to pay for, there's no purgatory. You understand this? And the reality is the only thing left is this promise that he makes, which is incredible. Incredible for anybody who believes at any time. I hope in heaven I get to sit next to the thief who died on the cross because he is by far the biggest scandal the church has ever seen. When Jesus, when Jesus breathed his last, he had one final interaction with a living human being. It was a robber, a thief, evildoers, what the King James says, criminal who was being executed for his crime. A criminal who presumably never had the chance to be baptized Sorry, Baptists. He never had the chance to go to church. Sorry, Christians. Or temple. Sorry, Jews. Or mass. Sorry, Catholics. He had not a chance to receive one single sacrament. And Luke records this. I'm convinced that there will be no question about the power of Christ and Christ alone to save any man and take him immediately to heaven when they die. If you turn to Luke 23, you're going to see one of the thieves. He's hurling insults at Jesus. Save yourself and as The crowd joins in when suddenly out of nowhere, of all people, this thief hanging next to him, says this. He says, Don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done what? Has done nothing wrong. It's messy, and it's the most beautiful confession you will see. He says, Don't you fear God? In other words, we're about to face judgment. He acknowledged, when we step from this life in a few minutes into the next, we're going to face God. We're going to face God. That's incredible. And then he says, our sins are punished justly. We're getting what we deserve, but this man's done nothing wrong. And he says in verse 42, Jesus, what's he say? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus promise him? He says, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me. Where? In paradise. Notice what he didn't say. Today, you will be with me in purgatory. Nor, I will see you in paradise the day after tomorrow. (laughs) Or whenever you finally pay off whatever debts you may have that you don't know about right now in purgatory, in the afterlife. He says, today, this moment, you will be with me in paradise. Folks, it's hard to believe the gospel can be this simple, but it is. It's hard to believe that we have more to learn from a petty thief than, respectfully, a pope, but we do. This man presumably never had a chance to receive the Eucharist, communion, obey a single commandment. He was defined by breaking law. That's where they're publicly executing him. He didn't have a chance to do a single good work, not one. And yet, at the end of his life, he turned to Christ for forgiveness, and Christ accepted him. More than that, he promised him Today. You will be with me in paradise. And it shows definitively that our deeds don't save us. What does? Faith in Christ alone. Not Christ also. Today, you can be 100% assured that when you die, you will be with Christ in heaven. There is no purgatory. There is no intermediate place where you go to have your soul scrubbed clean. Folks, Jesus endured the pain. Jesus Paid our debt in full. It's finished, and that's why He has the authority to promise us immediately eternal life in heaven when we leave this world. There is no delay. It is never, it is never too late to turn to God. That amazing. Even in His misery, Jesus has mercy on a sorry criminal who, who who simply says, "Remember me." He had humility. He had repentance. He acknowledged his sin and said, "You're the Savior. Just remember me. I have faith." My question is, do you have that assurance? that there's nothing to add to your salvation, that there's no punishment waiting for you because Jesus paid it completely, and that your salvation is secure, and you can actually never lose your salvation. Did you know that, by the way? I mean, honestly, a lot of people think, a lot of people do think this. If I fall from grace, if I die without the sacraments, if I haven't done enough to balance out my sins, or maybe I commit a really big one at the end of my life, I'm going to lose my salvation. You never know for sure until death. That's the whole thing. Heaven, hell, purgatory, you don't know. Guys, just personally, I spent my teens and my early 20s just struggling in this endless cycle. I was always, you know, struggling with lust and girls and stuff like that. And I lived in this endless cycle of, of sin and then guilt and confession. Sin, then guilt, confession. Sin, then guilt, confession. And I got dizzy after a while. And some people go through that cycle thousands of times over their lifetime, hoping that their last confession or good work will just be just enough to get them across the line and get them saved. You don't have to live like that. Biblical salvation is 100% secure because it doesn't depend on man, but on God. Not what we do, what Jesus did. In John 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. He said that once in his hands, our salvation can never be lost. He said this, he said, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me. And then he says this, what? I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can what? snatch them out of my hand, make a fist. All of our campuses, hold up your hand, make a fist like this, heart tight. In other words, ours, he's like, you can't pry one finger loose from me when I have them. It's the power of the shepherd. He says, I will let no one take them from me. No thief, no sin can steal or destroy their salvation once you are in the Savior's hands. Nothing will slip through his fingers. Well, what if, what if we sin and we wander off? Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I'll leave 99 and go after the one. It is this incredible assurance of salvation. I was always worrying with my latest sin. Oh, no, did I lose it? That anxiety, folks, was only put to rest when I took Christ's promise to heart. He said, I give Tim eternal life. He will never perish. No one can snatch Tim out of my hand. That's powerful. Once you're in God's hands, he never lets go. Nothing we do or or we fail to do will let us slip from his grasp. Jesus says, my father who gave them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my father's hands. In other words, we got a two-handed grip on this thing because some of you are a little squirrely. I and the father are one. We're one in the end. Do you understand what this is about? It's about an inseparable bond of love, a loving father, his beloved son, and you. You. Together again, for all eternity, home, at last, reunited in heaven forever. That's what heaven is. Who guarantees such a thing? It is literally guaranteed by God the Son and God the Father. And they have been in the business of saving souls for thousands of years and they've never lost a single case. Do you see the beauty in this? Once you are saved, it becomes about love You're not motivated out of the fear of punishment, but out of the love of Christ. That's what you get caught up in. Although the afterlife may be uncertain in some circles, in Christ you can be completely confident in your standing before God. The Apostle Paul, he was a murderer. He committed mortal sin. In Romans 8.35 he says, Who shall separate us? from the love of Christ. And he says, should, should trouble or hardship or persecution, famine, nakedness, sorry, you lists all these things and then his heart settles down on this promise. He says, for I am, what's the word? Convinced that neither death nor life nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from what? The love of God, the Father that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen? That's powerful. That promise is yours. The pain he endured was for you. Why have you forsaken me? So you could live. The debt he paid was yours. It's finished. You have nothing left. Why are you feeling guilty? And the promise he makes is yours. Today, you will be with me in paradise. What do you do to claim this? How how do I get... You act like a thief. You have the humility to say, I can't do this. Remember me, Jesus. Remember me. You confess your sin and you receive salvation and it's secure that's what I want to give you the chance to do right now. So we're going to do this. We're going to take a moment just to bow our heads and pray. And um, just uh, as our, our, our heads are bowed, can everyone who is a believer, you are trusting Christ for your Savior, would you just raise your hand? You're saying, I have that assurance. I know if I walk out of here, praise God for you. That's amazing. You are walking out of here with complete confidence. That's amazing. All right, hands down. That's great. God, I want to thank you for every man and woman who has heard the gospel. They have not given their heart to religion, but they've given their heart to Christ. I thank you for that, God. The gospel is so powerful. Jesus, I'm just going to hog the prayer. I thank you for saving me. If you can save me, you can save anybody, Father. And I thank you for your mercy, that it's never too late to turn to you in humility. And that blood was for me. We just take a moment to acknowledge that and thank you. And Father, at this moment, there are men and women who want to pass over from death to life and leave here with a 100% assurance that today they were saved and that tomorrow they will be in paradise no matter what happens. If that's you, you can simply pray a very simple prayer. Jesus, forgive my sin. I believe you are my Savior. Come into my life today. I want to go to heaven and be with you. I give my life to you. Now come live in me. If that's your prayer, again, we'll just keep our heads down. The reason I'm asking you is shoot your hand up real quick just to say I'm praying that today for the first time because this is between you and God. No one's watching. I see that hand over there. Praise God for you. You're entering God's family. In the back, someone's entering. You are a brand new brother, sister of Christ, powerful. Anybody else, you're just praying right now. Just shoot up quick so that I can see that. God, I'm thanking you. God, your kingdom, the, the gates of heaven are opening and men and women are coming into your family. We thank you for that. Confirm that with your spirit, Lord. May anything I said, that Lord, that is, uh, is my uh, you know, error fall to the ground like dust. May the word of Christ, Lord, leave in the hearts of your children today. We ask that in the name of Jesus and all God's people said together, Amen. Amen.